0: Section four of The Ring and the Book, An Interpretation, by Francis Bickford Hornbrook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four, Half-Rome and the other Half-Rome. The books of Half-Rome, the other Half-Rome, and Tertium Quid are, with the exception of the pleas of the lawyers and the book and the ring, the least interesting parts of the poem. After reading the first book, one may pass to the other parts without being aware of any serious loss. But while these portions are lacking in the intense interest, which belongs to those parts where the actors in the story speak for themselves, they have value and significance in the general structure of the whole poem. In these three books, Browning allows us to hear again the gossip of the street and the drawing room, as Rome heard it in 1698. The three persons who speak in the successive books are representative characters meant to portray different phases of opinion and feeling. They make us feel as if we were living in the atmosphere of the tragic events which had just taken place and as if we were looking at them in the light of the prejudices, special experiences, sympathies and antipathies of those around us. As we read these books we become aware as we could in no other way Of the sentiments with which Rome was quivering, Browning, in fact, has not drawn these representative characters from his imagination alone. In the square old yellow book, part print, part manuscript, there are two versions of the tragic event, one written in sympathy with the husband, the other written in sympathy with the wife. From these the poet has drawn many of the statements and pleas which we find in the particular poems. Thus the poet did not create their opinions, he found them, and quickened them with the life of his own spirit. Tertium Quid, however, has been framed by Browning from a comparison of what he found in the two pamphlets. In this an attempt is made to give an impartial and balanced account of the whole story. The oftener I read these books, the better satisfied I am with them, the more conscious I am of their vital significance and the gladder I am that they are where they are. The ring and the book would have lost something of its total impressiveness without these books, which the impatient reader is sometimes disposed to pass by or neglect. They contain many beautiful passages, taken singly, but their main interest lies in a comparison of the different forms which the events and characters assume, as the persons in them happen to take one side or the other. If we have ever been inclined to talk of seeing things as they are, these accounts will convince us that we never do anything of the kind. We see only according to what we ourselves are. Half-Rome speaks of the parents of Pompilia as these wretched comparini, and declares that Violante ought to be throttled for the deception she had practised on Pietro and Guido, while the other half-Rome describes the comparini as nor low in the social scale, nor yet too high. As for Violante, her deception was well-meant, nobody was consciously wronged by it, and besides, the soul of a child had been saved from destruction. These accounts of the causes and motives of the marriage of Guido and Pompilia differ in the same way. Half-Rome asserts that Violante had used Pompilia as a bait to attract a husband, and that she, who had caught one fish, could make the same bait catch a still bigger one. So, her minnow was set wriggling on its barb. Guido's motive in marrying her is explained as his desire to gain a sweet drop from the bitter past, to light the dark house, to lend a look of youth to the mother's face grown meagre, and to better assert his right as elder brother in the house. Then, too, Guido was a choice catch, even if he was past his prime and poor besides. He was a nobleman with powerful friends, and he had a palace one might run to and be safe from importunate creditors. Half-Rome declares that Count Guido was made to woo, win, and wed at once, and was carried to San Lorenzo and married, or the sly there, by some priest-confederate properly paid to make short work and sure, before he had time to think twice. As for Pietro, he did not know of the marriage, in order that he might later play the part of the offended and outraged father. But the other half-Rome assures the reader that the marriage of Guido and Pompilia was proposed by Guido's brother, the Abate Paolo, who came to the house of Pompilia and pleaded with her mother Violante, while her father Pietro, took his after-dinner nap, when, later, Violante told her husband of the proposal, he was delighted, until he learned from his companions that Guido was miserably poor, and that one would not look at him, or his, if he had one penny piece to rattle twixt his palms. In consequence, Pietro refused to have anything to do with the proposed marriage, congratulating himself that, while there was one hope the less, there was not misery the more. Afterward, however, without his consent or knowledge, Pompilia was taken to the church by her mother and there married to Guido by a priest, Abate Paolo, perhaps. Then Pietro, when he could do nothing else, gave his consent and made the best he could of a bad matter. The accounts of the old couple at Arezzo, in the palace of Guido, differ from beginning to end. Half-Rome accuses the Comparini of expecting too much and of anticipating rich banquets and lavish expenditure, as if Plutus paid a whim. But Guido was through with all that. He had found soapsuds bitter to the tongue, and hoped that by pinching and paring he might furnish forth a frugal board, bare sustenance, no more, till times, that could not well grow worse, should mend. This caused an outcry on the part of the Comparini, who complained to everybody that they were compelled to house as spectres in a sepulchre, the grimmest in a gruesome town, to pick garbage on a pewter plate, that they were robbed and starved and frozen too. They called Guido's mother a doited crone, dragon and devil, and also criticised and blamed whatever his brother Girolamo did. After four months of this purgatory, dog-snap and cat-claw, curse and counterblast, they left Pompilia, bad Arezzo rot, cursed life signorial, and returned to Rome. The other half-Rome informs us that the Comperini touched bottom at Arezzo. There they had four months' experience of craft and greed, quickened by penury and pretentious hate four months' taste of apportioned insolence, of graduated cruelty and ruffianism, until, at last, they fled for their lives to Rome, deeming themselves lucky to bear off a shred of skin, while Guido remained lord of the prey. We have very different views of Pompilia's conduct at Arezzo after the departure of her parents in the two narratives. Half Rome says that when the parents had gone, Pompilia pricked by some loyal impulse, wrote a letter in which she declared that since Pietro and Violante had departed, hell was heaven and the house was now as quiet as Carmel where the lilies live. All her complaints were due to their promptings. She further wrote that they had advised her to flee with a lover to Rome, first putting poison in Guido's cup and stealing his money and jewels. This, half-Rome assures us, is fact and not a dream of the devil. Word for word, such a letter did she write. After this, however, Pompilia seems to have changed her mind. The house was too dull. She looked outside for life and light, and found both in Caponsacchi, for whom she was always watching at her windows. When Guido remonstrated with her about her conduct, she rushed to the governor and to the archbishop, just to torment him, and make him the laughing stock of the town." The other half-Rome asserts that the letter, said to have been written by Pompilia, was really written by her husband in pencil and retraced by her in ink. She was unable to write and had no knowledge of what she was induced to copy. Then Guido deliberately set himself to annoy her. He chased her about the coop of daily life and planned so that no other way of escape was left her than in the arms of Caponsacchi, When she had been forced to flee with him, Guido expected to be able to brand her as a castaway, and to gain all he wished, the property and the divorce. Pompilia, maddened by her misery, and not knowing what to do, appealed to the governor and to the archbishop for help, but both alike declined to interfere. Then she went to a simple friar, and begged him to write a letter for her to her parents. This he promised to do, but when he reflected that writing such a letter would involve him in danger, he sighed at the mistake of matrimony and did nothing. As a last resort, she sought Caponsacchi, whom she had never seen before, and begged him to take her to Rome, and this he consented to do. Does this seem improbable? So is the legend of my patron saint. In the account of the flight of Pompilia with Caponsacchi. Half-Rome says the Pompilia drugged Guido, stole his money and jewellery, and having thus spoiled the Philistines, jaunted jollily with her lover to Rome. But the other half-Rome claims that she rose up in the dark, laid hands on what came first, clothes and a trinket or two, and stole from the side of her sleeping husband, who was perhaps sleeping, certainly silent, and then moved, unembarrassed as a fate, from room to room, to the door. Wife and priest alike reply, this is a simple thing it claims to be, a course we took for life and honour's sake. She says, God put it in my head to fly, as when the martin migrates. And so we did fly rapidly all night, all day, all night, a longer night, again, and then another day, longest of days. One thought filled both, fly and arrive. Half-Rome sneers at Caponsacchi as sympathy made flesh, Apollos turned Apollo, and declares that he was always felt everywhere in Guido's path. He says that Caponsacchi threw comforts to Pompilia in the theatre, pressed close till his foot touched hers, and that Guido suspected some falseness, but he could do nothing. The other half-Rome maintains that Caponsacchi must of necessity be in Guido's way, since both of them moved in the regular magnate's march, each must observe the other's tread, and halt, at church, saloon, theatre, house of play. It is not strange, therefore, that he saw, pitied, loved Pompilia. They understood each other at first look. So differ also the conceptions of Guido. Half-Rome declares that he was forced, by the conduct of Pietro and Violante, to drive them from his home. He could not endure their clamour and the exposure they made of its poverty. After they had gone, he treated Pompilia, at first, with kindness. He did not turn her out of doors. His compassion saved her from scandal. All might go well yet. He treated her somewhat harshly only when he had reason to suspect her only when he began to see the marks of Caponsacchi everywhere, as when the trouble of eclipse hangs overhead. Then he is harsh, because he has the right to judge. But the other half-Rome states that Guido meant, from the first, to drive Pietro and Violante away by graduated cruelty, and that it was also his purpose to force Pompilia, by devilish devices, into a life of shame, and so to get rid of her while he retained the dowry. So should the loathed form and detested face launch themselves into hell and there be lost, while he looked o'er the brink with folded arms. There are striking contrasts, again, in the judgments of Guido's motive in committing the murder and of his right to take the course he pursued. half tells us that the news of the birth of a son was the last drop which poisoned Guido to the bone. Then, the overburdened mind broke down, and what was a brain became a blaze. He suggests that Guido named Caponsacchi at the door of the villa in order to make a last experiment to prove the innocence of Pompilia. He describes Guido's companions as four stout hearts who had sisters and wives. Guido, he alleges, had indeed at first appealed to the courts, but since they had given him no aid, he reverted to his original right, the right of an injured husband. True, he overdid the matter, but his deed had made it better for husbands of wives, especially in Rome. But the other half-Rome asserts that Guido was moved to murder Pietro, Violante and Pompilia because when these were out of the way, his son would be heir to all the money, and he himself the only custodian of the helpless infant. That he named Caponsacchi at the door of the villa, showed that he knew that Caponsacchi was not within, since otherwise the man's own self might have been found inside. He designates his four companions as brutes of his breeding. After Guido's appeal to law, he had no right to resort to violence. To allow that were too commodious. It will be seen that in Half-Rome we have a narrative of the affair according to those who were in sympathy with the husband, Guido. It gives us, in a distinct and well-defined form, the sentiments of those who favoured his action and approved his course. The person who expresses this phase of popular feeling comes before us in a critical mood. The Roman government was, at that time, entirely in the hands of ecclesiastics, and the court was composed of those who had condemned Guido. Hence those who defended him were inclined to find fault with everything that was done or left undone. Thus half-Rome begins with a word of reproach for the priests of San Lorenzo. Fie! What a roaring day we've had! Whose fault? Lorenzo and Lucina. Here's a church to hold a crowd at need, accommodate all comers from the Corso. If this crush make not its priests ashamed of what they show for temple room, Don't prick them to draw purse, and down with brick and mortar, eke us out the beggarly transept with its bit of apse, into a decent space for Christian ease. Why, today's lucky pearl is cast to swine. He had his contemptuous word for the wooden railing in the church, which the crowd broke, painted like porphyry to deceive the eye. He also has a keen vision for pretense, as we see in his account of the young curate, Who comes into the church, mounts the pulpit, and attributes this terrible tragedy to the influence of Molinism, the philosophic sin, because the cardinals, who had written a book on that heresy, were present. He approves of the conduct of Guido, on the whole, but there is a touch of cynicism in his approval. People would care more for him if he were less known and were not still alive. Half-Rome shows himself a shrewd observer of social ways. He knows how people defer to nobility, and he appreciates the value of being connected with a nobleman with friends, who has a palace in which one may be safe from importunate creditors. At the same time, he fully understands the shifts to which impecunious nobility must resort, the pinching and paring to get bare sustenance, the cold glories served up with three worth sauce. But with all his shrewdness and keen perception of actual facts, his bias is so decidedly in favour of Guido that he takes all he says about his affairs as absolutely true. He accepts, without a doubt, the story that Pompilia wrote a letter after the departure of her reputed parents, as he accepts the correspondence between Caponsacchi and Pompilia without criticism. As he has no doubt of Guido's word, so he has no faith in Pompilia's honour. He assumes, as a matter of course, that she must be guilty of what is imputed to her, because she belongs to a certain class, and has been placed under certain circumstances. She found herself, he says, young and fair, and that her husband was old and poor, and so she did what all like her do, looked out of the window for life and liberty, and found both in Caponsacchi. He displays the same kind of class judgment when he comes to consider Caponsacchi. He was a priest, fine-looking, in great favor with society in Arezzo, and with abundant leisure. He must have done what Guido said he did. Taking for granted, as he does, Pompilia's misconduct at the inn, he sees in her act of drawing the sword of Guido and threatening his life only an exhibition of effrontery. He has only a sneer for the popular opinion in her favour. Guido, he thinks, overdid his act, but he was engaged in a good cause, in the interests of the rights of the family, which he always regards as necessarily identical with those of the husband. At the close of the poem, he clearly reveals the motive which has animated him, and which, no doubt, represents the motives of many about him. He had been annoyed by the attention which the cousin of the one, to whom he was talking, had been paying his wife. This deed of Guido, though somewhat exaggerated, since he had killed three instead of one, had made it worse for him, but, the better for you and me and all the world, husbands of wives, especially in Rome. The thing is put right, in the old place. Aye, the rod hangs on its nail, behind the door, fresh from the brine a matter I commend to the notice, during carnival that's near, of a certain what's-his-name and and jackanapes, somewhat too civil of Eve's with lute and song, about a house here, where I keep a wife. You, being his cousin, may go tell him so. To the other half-Rome, the continued existence of Pompilia seems a miracle. She had prayed for this, and her last prayer had been answered. He notes the difference between her, as she was a few days since, when no one noticed her, and now, when the great artist Maratta declares, a lovelier face is not in Rome. He shows moral perception in his judgment of Violante, who had passed off Pompilia as her own child. At first it might seem as if she had done what was almost praiseworthy in taking her from the slums and nurturing her in a good home. What so excessive harm was done? To which, he thinks, the dreadful answer came in this tragedy which had taken place. His sympathy with Pompilia causes him to believe what the companions of Guido had said, that all of him was gone except sloth, pride, rapacity. So too, his sympathy makes it easy for him to believe that the story of Caponsacchi's conduct was no more improbable than the story of his patron saint. He believed in the one case what he wanted to believe, why not in the other? Men acted from unusual motives ages ago, why not now? Even out of his unreasoning sympathy there had grown a noble insight. At last she took to the open, stood and stared with her wan face to see where God might wait, and there found Kaponsakhi wait as well for the precious something at perdition's edge. He only was predestinate to save, and if they recognised, in a critical flash, from the zenith, each the other, her need of him, his need of, say, a woman to perish for, the regular way of the world, yet break no vow, do no harm, save to himself, if this were thus, how do you say? It were improbable. So is the legend of my patron saint. Anyhow, whether... As Guido states the case, Pompilia, like a starving wretch of the street, who stops and rifles the first passenger in the great right of an excessive wrong, did somehow call this stranger, and he came. Or whether the strange sudden interview blazed, as when star and star must needs go close, till each hurts each, and there is loss in heaven, whatever way in this strange world it was, Pompilia and Caponsacchi met in fine, she at her window, he in the street beneath, and understood each other at first look. This sympathy with Pompilia makes him conscious of Guido's intentions. He has no special knowledge of these, but compassion makes him wise, and he enters into the motive which, Pompilia says, made her leave her husband's home. God put it in my head to fly, as when the martin migrates. Autumn claps her hands, cries, "'Winter's coming! We'll be here! "'Off with you ere the white teeth overtake! "'Flee!' So I fled." He realises that she obeyed the great call of nature which prompts the she-dove to seek the unknown shelter by undreamed-of shores. He has no patience with Guido's plea that he had a right to resort to violence after he had applied to the courts to decide his case. One or the other he ought to follow. To take the law and then after it had failed him to resort to violence was too commodious and would not do. End of section four.